Hi, I'm Mark Priestley. After a life spent in the elite environment of the Formula One pit lane learning how to win, this podcast aims to bring that elusive, high-performance culture into your daily lives. This week, we're looking at how our perspective of a certain incident on the racetrack can make us see and judge it very differently, and how F1's taught me that trying to understand other people's perspectives can be a powerful tool that can create big advantages in our lives. Welcome to Pit Lane Life Lessons. Talk about how Formula One teams are so successful. Tiny things, but you only find those tiny things when you look for them. Of course, there's only one winner in every Grand Prix, so for everybody else, you haven't won, so it could be deemed that's, that's a failure. Hey everybody and welcome back to a brand new episode of the Pit Lane Life Lessons podcast. Thank you so much to all of you who keep writing to me, keep sending me messages to let me know that you're enjoying it. It really does keep me going, so thank you. Um, I'm going to remind you at the end, but I'll say it now. If you do get a moment to rate and review the podcast, particularly in the Apple Podcast Store, which is where that thing triggers the algorithm most of all and catapults the podcast up the order and to more people, I would really appreciate that. If you're listening anywhere else, I'd love it if you'd follow, subscribe, send me a message, just engage somehow because it does make a big, big difference. And if you're happy enough to share this on your social channels, again, let's try and spread the word word to more and more people. Thank you very much to anyone who's willing to do that. I appreciate it. Um, Now, look, if you are new around here, the way this works is that uh, because I've spent my Many of my years inside Formula One, I've been lucky enough and privileged enough to learn a huge amount from an elite group of people in an elite sport and inside an elite organisation of the McLaren Formula One team. And what I do now is take some of the things that happen in the world around us together with things that are happening in the world of Formula One and try to delve into those a little more deeply and find some of the lessons that we can apply to our everyday Things that I perhaps take for granted having been involved in this sport for so long, but that I feel many of you can benefit from as well by applying some of these techniques, some of these ways of thinking to overcome the challenges that you face every day or just to take on the challenge of life that we're all up against all of the time. So I make a journal, I keep a journal every single day and at the end of each one of those journal entries, if there's something that I think is noteworthy or worthy of further discussion, I'll make a little note in the bottom of that page and come back to it, delving deeper into it in the podcast. And that is exactly where I want to start today. Because around this time last week, in fact, Monday morning, I was listening to a podcast, Jake Humphrey's podcast, uh, the High Performance Podcast, which I can highly recommend, by the way. It's a very good podcast. And this week they had on there a football referee. And that's unusual in, in itself, because not often do we ever get to hear from a football referee in the long form. Uh, of course, in the in the way that a podcast does. And I found it really interesting because it was hearing from somebody who's in charge of a football match who is often on the end of so much abuse, so much criticism from football fans, from players and managers, criticising decisions they've made, choices they've made, behaviours they've displayed throughout a game. And very rarely do they ever get too much in the way of celebration or praise. It tends to be loaded in a negative sense and they only get noticed when they do something wrong. And what was interesting about the podcast was we were all of a sudden hearing from the other side of that. We were hearing the perspective of the referee. 
And that's not something we often get to hear. And actually, I sat and listened to the whole thing. It's an hour, about an hour long, hearing about the reasons behind certain big decisions that may have been perceived incorrectly from a player's perspective or a fan's perspective. And all of a sudden we had the perspective of the referee giving us the other side of that story. And the note that I wrote in my diary at the end of that day simply said perspective. That was the note. And the reason I wrote that was because I suddenly had this realisation or this reminder, really, because it's not a realisation. I think we know this. Many of us probably know this. But perception is such a powerful thing. It's a thing that can have such a huge impact on the way we see the world. Two people can have a very different perception of the same incident or the same set of circumstances or the same decision, the same outcome from a particular moment in time. They can have two different perspectives, which mean that they see that completely differently. I mean, a whole 180 apart. And football is one of those sports where that is very, very evident. And it's often the referee's decisions which are the ones that are perceived so differently by two sets of fans or two sets of players. And of course, you know, I was immediately drawn back to the whole end of 2021's Formula One season in Abu Dhabi, where we had an almost similar situation, where the referee, if you're going to call Michael Massey the referee, made some decisions that absolutely polarised not just fans, not just the participants of that sport, But the teams, the people around those teams, the media, and of course, the thousands or hundreds of thousands or even millions of fans watching from home who all saw the incident very differently. Many of them seeing it completely differently to the way the referee saw it. And if you boil all of that down, no matter what we think of the rules and the way they were interpreted and any of those things, any of the outcomes that came off the back of that, ultimately... It simply boils down to perception, doesn't it? It comes all the way back to a having a different perception depending where you sit. Michael Massey will have a very different perception of what happened in Abu Dhabi to Lewis Hamilton. Equally to Lewis Hamilton fans, Max Verstappen will have a different perception of it, probably. So will Christian Horner, so will Red Bull fans. They will perceive what happened very, very differently because they're looking at it from different angles or from different perspectives. Now, one of the things that the referee was saying in the podcast I was listening to was he was talking through certain decisions, well-known, well-publicised decisions that perhaps had been controversial in some way when they were made. He was talking through those decisions and the reasons behind him making those decisions, but of course, from his perspective. And when you start to appreciate that His perspective, of course, in that moment is often made without the benefit of television slow motion replays, multiple camera angles, without the benefit of number of people talking about them in detail, figuring them out, debating them, trying to come to the right conclusion. He often has to make split second decisions in the heat of the moment under great pressure with a very different viewpoint. And he was talking about a certain incident where there was a handball in the penalty area and the players were up in arms because they thought that it should have been a decision, uh, should have been a penalty made, a decision made. The referee was saying, well, actually from where he was standing, there was a player blocking his view of where the potential handball 
was committed and so he simply couldn't see it. And so from his viewpoint, he can't give a penalty because he just cannot see the incident that many other people can see because they're seeing it from a different position. And that's perspective in its most simple form. The referee had a very different perspective on that little incident or that series of incidents in the football match because of his positioning on the field and the positioning of those around him. Everybody else who was watching on television, everybody else who might have been watching at that end of the ground in the crowd, even many of the players on the pitch had a completely different perspective and in their eyes it was the most blatant handball the world had ever seen. How on earth could the referee possibly not be blowing for a penalty? The referee must be crazy. What's he thinking of? Now if you completely switch your mindset and you put yourself into the position of the referee, look at that moment in time from the perspective of the referee He's looking over, he's got bodies between him and the ball and the moment where this potential contact happened and he doesn't see a handball. It's not that, you know, he didn't think it was a handball. He simply couldn't see it. His viewpoint was obstructed. So from his perspective, literally going by the laws of the game of football, he can't blow up and give a penalty. Now, of course, today we have... We have VAR technologies to go back and look at it from all of those different angles and those different perspectives. And hopefully you come to the right conclusion. But think about that referee's perspective in the moment he made the right decision, which was that he could not blow the whistle and call for a penalty because he didn't see a handball. Even if a handball absolutely happened, if he didn't see it, he can't blow the whistle. Now, that's a very different perspective that completely changes the outcome of that incident, of course. And if we take away the VAR scenario, go back a few years when VAR didn't exist, these same kind of problems, of course, were happening. But from a fan's perspective and a player's perspective who are shouting and screaming and call the referee all sorts of names, if you can put yourself in that moment in the perspective of the referee, he did nothing wrong. And of course, if you're a fan of that team, you might be upset that you didn't get that penalty. But is it fair to be angry at the referee because he didn't give it? When actually, if you can switch around and manage to place yourself in the perspective of that referee, he couldn't give it. So two very different perspectives can completely change a moment in time or an incident and certainly the outcome of those moments in time or incidents, the decisions that might be made around that moment in time or incidents. None of them necessarily are wrong, but the perspective that you come at them from completely changes how they are viewed and therefore the decisions that are taken. If we then come back to the Formula One in Abu Dhabi, and I'm not going to debate the rights and wrongs and the fairness or anything else about those decisions that were made on that day. But what I am going to ask you to do is just for a split second, whichever side of the camp you're on, whether you're a Max Verstappen fan, a Lewis Hamilton fan, or just a Formula One fan in general who feels let down, just for a moment in time, try and put yourself into the perspective of Michael Massey in those moments in the Grand Prix. And before you all start shouting and screaming and say, he just had to follow the rules. Just try and detach yourself from that anger, from that frustration for a second 
and try and put yourself in the seat that Michael Massey was sitting in in that moment. He is in probably the most pressurised situation he's ever been in in his entire life. One of the most pressurised situations I would imagine that any race steward or race official in Formula One has been in in their entire life, potentially even in the history of the sport. This is the closing day of a championship, probably the biggest number of eyeballs on the sport for many, many years. There is nothing between the two drivers going for the title and essentially whoever wins that race wins the world championship, the biggest prize available. Michael Massey knows all of this going into that Grand Prix. The last thing he wants, and I'm sure the thing that will have kept him awake in the days before Grand Prix race day, will have been the possibility that he might have had to end up making a decision that changes the outcome of that race and therefore the world title. And yet that's what happened. Few laps from the end, he has some major decisions to make in very, very tight time frames with huge pressure anyway. The pressure that he's been under in the week, building up to that Grand Prix and beyond. And then that pressure starts to ramp up because team principals and representatives from both teams start shouting at him down the open radio channels to the race director, telling the race director what sort of decisions he should be making. At the same time, the clock is ticking down. The laps are ticking away. As those laps tick away, he will literally run out of time to make any decision. He has in the back of his mind that he wants to make the right call for everybody. He wants to appease fans. He wants to make sure it's fair. He wants to get racing underway so that we don't finish under a safety car, which all of the teams and team principals and drivers have all agreed in advance that's the most preferred outcome if possible. He has all of this in his mind. And as that pressure starts ramping up and ramping up and the multitude of voices that Michael Massey has in his ear at that moment with everybody having an opinion on what he should do, he probably with hindsight makes a call that he might not have made in a completely different set of circumstances from a completely different perspective. He makes a call that many people disagree with. Well, now put yourself into the perspective of Max Verstappen's pit wall the Red Bull pit wall. They're looking at this and they are screaming at Michael Massey to let the lapped cars out of the way. From their perspective, that's what happens. That's the form here. When you've got a safety car like this and you want to get racing underway, you clear the lapped cars out of the way to allow the racing cars that are racing each other to close up in the field. So that's their perspective. That's desperately what they want. And they need it to happen now because we're running out of laps. And there's a championship at stake on the line here. If Michael Massey, the race director, doesn't make that call immediately, they will run out of time to fight for this world championship. Everything rests on what Michael Massey does next. So they pile on all manner of pressure, trying to get him to make the decision that they want from their perspective. Over at the Mercedes pit wall, there's a completely different perspective on all of this. Because what they want is to keep Lewis Hamilton at the front and keep the lapped cars between him and Max Verstappen. Because for them, they have done everything they need to do in this Grand Prix. They have turned around a points deficit over the second half of this season. They have clawed back and done everything they had to do to get themselves into this position. 
And now, even in this Grand Prix, Lewis Hamilton has driven perfectly and has controlled the race from the front. This is their championship. They deserve it 100%. There should be nothing that can possibly get in the way of this now with just a few laps to go. And so, from their perspective, they need Michael Massey to finish this race under the safety car. Or at least do not allow the lapped cars to overtake and let's just go racing again. The worst possible decision that could happen is the one that happened for them. So from their perspective, it's completely different from the perspective of the other two people involved in making this decision. Three completely different perspectives that would have had completely different outcomes had they just made those decisions based on any one of those three perspectives. The same set of circumstances, the same cars, the same racetrack, the same time ticking away, the same number of laps left, the same championship at stake, but three completely different perspectives that would have led to three completely different outcomes in those decisions. It's very difficult for any of us to actually really put ourselves in the position of the man who ultimately had to make that call, Michael Massey. I mean, I, like most people, think he probably got it wrong. But I don't think he got it wrong for any reason other than he buckled under pressure trying to do the right thing. And lots of people disagree with me on that. Lots of people will have a different perspective on why he did what he did and what it meant for them. But that's what perspective is. Perspective is different people's views on the same situation and they can be wildly different and actually do you know what there's nothing wrong with different perspectives different people's perspectives all have value they can all be wildly different from each other but they can all be valid in their own way and if you can manage to just for a moment Try to imagine the perspective that Michael Massey must have been under, that must have been coming from when he had to make those decisions, even if it doesn't change your mind, even if it doesn't make you agree. And it won't make many people agree if they disagree now. But it might give you a tiny understanding as to how he might have come to those conclusions. And some of the changes we're seeing made in the sport now from the FIA about how some of these decisions will be made in future, how team principals and teams can communicate with the FIA and with the race director in moments like this, because we're changing those, that's a very clear sign that the perspective that Michael Massey had on that particular day wasn't a fair one. It didn't allow him the best chance to make the clearest, best, most concise decision in that set of circumstances. If I try and look at things from his point of view, I have a sense, a certain sense of sympathy for what he was going through. Now, I may not agree with the decision, with the outcome of the decision that he made. I don't agree with what he did in the end, but I have sympathy for why he made it and how he came to that conclusion and what led to that particular outcome. And that's really where the biggest lesson from all of this comes, surely, isn't it? Because if we can, just for a moment, try to imagine what another person might be going through, what things look like to them and how that might differ from how they look to us, well, surely we can have a little bit less anger and maybe a little bit less frustration, a little bit more understanding in big moments like this. 
the referee in the podcast that I was listening to was talking about exactly this, in that they are the end of so much abuse, particularly from large crowds of people who egg each other on. And as soon as somebody waves their arms in the air, and it's often led by players in football, let's be fair, when somebody complains, moans, remonstrates against a referee, there are thousands of people who blindly follow them and back them up with the same perspective. And it's what we saw in Formula One, particularly over the course of last year, and then even more so off the back of Abu Dhabi. We had two sets of fans, particularly even two sets of teams who were becoming more and more frustrated with each other, more and more uh, angry is the wrong word, but vociferous in the way they were fighting off the field as well as they were fighting on the field uh, racetrack. <laughs> the fans, of course, you know, gathered around their man. They got behind their driver and their team. And some of the abuse that we all saw happen across social media and beyond was like something we haven't seen very often in Formula One. It was more like football fans shouting, arguing, getting angry and even abusing each other because they had the perspective from their point of view and didn't have any sense of perspective from that of the other side. And look... One of the things that I have learned, and this is perhaps another lesson that I can share with you from my time in the sport, right? Because perspective is one of those things that I have learned over the years, particularly from some of my times at McLaren. Perspective can be something that not only gives you a little bit of empathy towards another party or the opposition or whoever it might be, a little bit of understanding as to what someone else might be going through. But it can also become a differentiator. It can also become a competitive tool that you can use to your advantage. Understanding other people's perception of things, you can actually use in a competitive environment to help you win, to help you beat the competition. And I'll give you a few examples of this, right? If you're a racing driver, for example, if you're racing down the straight in a Formula One car and you've got somebody right behind you chasing you down, maybe for the race win, maybe for the championship. Maybe you're going into the braking zone for a corner and the guy behind has got a bit of a run on you and you're going to go wheel to wheel. And this could be it. This is your big moment to either defend that lead or potentially lose out and whatever costly outcome that might have for you. If you can try and in that split second, put yourself into the perspective of the guy behind, you can start to analyse in moments what he might do. What's he going to do? If I was here, if I was sitting in his position, what would I do? Where would I place my car? Where's the right corner to overtake? Where is he going to think the best opportunity to get by is? Where might I be safe? In which case I can perhaps save some battery energy. Perhaps I can harvest some energy. And where, if I was him, would I go for the overtake? In which case, maybe that's where I save my battery deployment to defend hard. Maybe I position my car differently going into one particular corner because that's where I think he'll probably go for it. That's looking at someone else's perspective of the same view, of the same incident rather, that you're looking at from your seat. And their perspective could be completely different to yours. But if you can just imagine yourself in their position for a moment, 
if you can just switch over in that split second and just get a glimpse into their perspective, perhaps you can use that to your advantage to defend that position or vice versa to make the overtake if you're car chasing. I mean, that's one example. When we made strategy decisions, I mean, I've spent time in the strategy room at McLaren in mission control. And you're making, again, split second decisions that can change the outcome of a race. There's lots of people analysing data and TV feeds, pictures coming in. Lots of conversations happening about what decisions should be made to get the best out of this Grand Prix. And actually, one of the most advantageous things you can do in those strategy conversations is put yourself into the perspective of some of your main rivals. Because quite often in Formula One, you know, you're not just racing against yourself, you're racing against somebody else, you're racing against another driver or another team. And if you boil that down further as a strategy group, you're kind of racing against another strategy group from another organisation. That's another group of people looking at the same race, looking at the same set of circumstances, the same potential challenges as you, more or less. Similar group of people trying to make similar decisions, but they're looking at it from a different perspective. And because of that, the outcome of their decisions might be different. Now, if you both teams just sit there looking at things from your side, making the best decisions for you... That's fine. It may well work out. But if you need to throw the dice, if you need to make a gamble, if you need to make a big decision because you're perhaps not the lead car and the only way you might get past is by making a big gamble of a decision that may not seem like the obvious one, but could actually give you the biggest advantage if it comes good. Sometimes those decisions are often best taken after putting yourself in the perspective of your main rivals, of your competition. Because if you can manage to do that successfully, and I'm talking about split seconds here, but if you can manage to get into the heads, get into the minds, look at the viewpoint of your competition, you can start to predict what they might do, what sort of decisions they might take, given their perspective. And if you can start to get a read on that, if you can start to figure that out with some degree of accuracy, with some degree of of surety, you might want to start changing the decisions that you make on your side. Because if you can accurately predict what the opposition are going to do because you've seen things from their perspective, well, then it completely changes your perspective. You can change what you're going to do. You can change your decisions to outfox them, which might seem like a gamble, but actually... If they do what you think they're going to do because you've sat in their seat, metaphorically speaking, well, then it might just work your way. It might come back around to you. You might catch them off guard. You'll do something they're not expecting because perhaps they were only looking at it from their perspective. Those decisions can be really powerful ones and we see them play out all the time. We don't see that decision making process happen. But quite often we see decisions that have second guessed what others might be going to do. We see decisions that may not seem like the natural decision, a natural decision to be made at first. But then later in the Grand Prix, it comes good. It works out for a team. And sometimes that's because that team or that strategy group have managed to put themselves just for a moment in the seat of the opposition, 
seen things through their eyes, figured out what they might be thinking because you've looked at things from their perspective. Those things can offer a competitive advantage and it's exactly the same in life and in business. Competition on a racetrack can be pretty much the same as competition in business. And in life in general, looking at other people's perspective has so many obvious advantages from this idea of empathy and understanding, which clearly is a great way to behave. It's a great trait to have. If you can start to understand other people's perspectives, it makes you less frustrated with any decision they might have made because you start to get a little bit of understanding as to why they might have made it. And even if you don't agree with the decision they made, you can see why they might have come to that conclusion. And perhaps then a conversation can happen off the back of that where you can articulate that you understand why they think that way, why they've come to that conclusion. But look, here's my perspective on this. I know, and I know this from my own experience, that often the mechanics in Formula One get frustrated with the designers of the car at times. You can imagine it happening, can't you? You can imagine that a designer designs something that a mechanic then has to work on week in, week out, and it might be really difficult. It might be really inaccessible. It might not be particularly user-friendly. The designer or the aerodynamicist, from their perspective, of course, they might be just looking at wind tunnel results, at CFD results. They might have designed something that is aerodynamically brilliant, a component that's lighter or stronger and yet smaller, more aerodynamic, that's a big tick for an aerodynamicist or from a design perspective. But if that component then takes two hours to remove from the car to be able to adjust it, well, then that's a big cross from a mechanical perspective, from an engineering perspective, because no one's got two hours to make that adjustment at the racetrack. Now, one party could be really frustrated with the other, the designers may be really frustrated with the mechanics or the engineers who might complain about that component being designed a certain way. And of course, the mechanics and engineers will get very angry that no one asked them what this component should look like or how it's going to work, how it's going to be used. They're two very different perspectives on the same component of a racing car. These things happen all the time. And so we have to. And this is why I said I learned through my time at McLaren that perspective can be a really powerful thing if you can manage to embrace it and use it to your advantage. Because if we can see things from the perspective of the other side of the coin, well, we can actually become much more productive, much more powerful, much more successful, because it's a quicker way for us to start working together to a better outcome if we can appreciate the perspective that both sides are coming from because then perhaps we can quickly or more quickly find a compromise in the middle that works for both and still gives us the success that we're looking for. If everyone refuses to see the perspective of another person and only looks at things from the way they see it, you'll never get anywhere. You'll reach a stalemate and actually even if you don't reach a stalemate, you'll hold up the process you'll slow down the route to success. And this podcast is all about speeding up the route to success, whatever success looks like for you. Understanding the perspectives of others is a surefire way to get there even quicker. I have had endless discussions with my wife recently because we're 
renovating a massive renovation on our house. Now, my wife Claire is hugely into interior design and home style generally. I'm I mean I appreciate it all, but it's not my big big passion. You know, for me, my big passion is is cars and racing. They're not passions of Claire's. So Claire doesn't ever understand why I might get excited about a car or might want to spend you know, a certain amount of money on a car. She can't see how on earth we could possibly justify that because it means nothing to her. It's just a thing that gets her from A to B. Now, I have a totally different perspective on that. It's a much bigger thing than just a means of transportation for me. I'm passionate about cars and about racing, about performance engineering and about brilliant engineering. Those things really float my boat. They are massive boxes for me that I want to tick at every opportunity when I can. So when it comes to things like spending money, we've had endless disagreements about spending money on a car or spending money on things on the house. We're going through this renovation with Claire picking out things that are really important to her and so she can justify the expense of them or the work that might be involved in installing them. Whereas I might look at those same things and think, it's just not worth it. I can't believe you're willing to put this amount into this thing. What's the point? We could get it for half the price looking like this. Now, for quite a long time, those arguments just ended in stalemate because neither of us could actually see the other side's perspective. And it's only really recently, and we're still working on this. I mean, my goodness, we still have plenty of arguments about this kind of stuff, but we're working on it, both of us together, to start to appreciate that because she is passionate about a certain thing that I'm not necessarily so passionate about and vice versa, both of those perspectives are entirely justified and are entirely valid. We both fully believe what we're saying to be true, to be correct. We're both correct because that's how we feel. Because we are genuinely passionate about those things. And it's only when we start to appreciate those different perspectives that we can understand how someone else came to the conclusion that they've come to. And we compromise somewhere in the middle of these things quite often. That's often how these things work. Quite often I will completely back down on something that Claire's really passionate about installing in our house because I can see what it means to her. Sometimes I find that very hard to do and I'm being completely honest here. Sometimes I find it so hard to do and I will almost say it through gritted teeth because I'm saying something I honestly don't believe. Yes, darling, go ahead. We'll, we'll, let's get that really expensive thing for the house. And yet inside I might be thinking, this is the most ridiculous thing we've ever spent money on. But I know that she's thinking exactly the same thing when I say, look, I, I think it's time to change the car and this is the car that I want to buy. And she might say, that is an absolute ridiculous a joke. You can't spend that. We don't need a car like that. We just need this. And eventually we might get to the point where she'll understand that it's important to me. It's a passion of mine. And so even though she might completely disagree that it's the right decision, she'll say, OK, go for it. If that's what you want to do, go for it. And it's taken us a long time to get to that point. And still, like I say, we don't always reach that point successfully. But that's the value of understanding other people's perspectives. 
It's important, it's powerful, and it's crucial to us, to businesses, to F1 teams, to football referees, to the wider world, getting along, becoming more successful, and having a smoother, peaceful set of outcomes to any difficult decisions that have to be made. Right, let's move things on because I want to skip forward a few pages in my journal, in my diary, uh, to the moment when later this week I had a Zoom call, a conversation with the president and CEO of an enormous global brand, a brand you've all heard of and know very well. They are a brand that's had huge success over the years. They have an enormously long history behind them and they're a brand that is about to change direction. For a number of reasons. Now, I am off this week to New York uh, to go and see the senior management team of this brand and talk to them about how they go about this change of direction. And it prompted me to write down the note in my diary, how do we change direction? Because one of the questions that the CEO of this company asked me in the Zoom call was, How is it that if we want to change direction as a company, how do we get the thousands of people that work for this company to change direction with us? And the context of this is that they are going through not quite a rebranding, but they want to change. uh, Here's a link back. They want to change people's perception of this brand. They want people to perceive the brand differently to the way that they perceive it today. And to do that, what they need is a big shift from everybody within the company about how they behave, how they operate, how they think, the way they go about their business. Because they want to operate like the brand that they want to become, like the brand that they want people to see them in a year or two from now. And the question was, if you want to change direction so fundamentally like they are, How do you get the thousands of people in the company to change direction and work differently to the way they work today? Because in reality, people, humans, are inherently resistant to change. Nobody really wants to just change doing things from a a way that they are comfortable and familiar with doing them. Nobody wants the boss to come into work and say, right, from tomorrow, we're all going to be doing things differently. No one wants that if you just deliver that news like that. Because, as I say, people have built up skills. They've got experience in doing things the way they do them. Many people will think they do those things very well. They have grown into that role. They've developed the the way they do things over many years, and that's why they're so good at it. So why on earth do we have to start changing and doing things differently? But if the senior management, if the group at the top of a big company see a good reason to change direction and this particular company does it's a valid reason it's the right decision to make and the next challenge is to get everybody else on board with that and what I'm going to New York this week to do is to spend a day with these people the top of the tree in this big company working through some of the challenges that they are inevitably going to face in doing this And one of the things that I said to them through my experience at McLaren, because McLaren has changed direction many, many times. Formula One has changed direction from changing branding directions, from changing company leadership and management, from the way that a company itself is branded as well as the sport. 
We've had huge shifts in the type of cars that we make and produce, how we make and produce those, the type of budgets we have available to us to do those things. There are changes happening all the time. And look, let's face it, the entire world is going through some of the biggest changes that we have been through, certainly for a very, very, very long time over the last couple of years. And many of us are now having to deal with the realities of what we do to deal with those changes, how we face up to those changes, how we embrace them, how we take those changes on and see them as opportunities. For many of us, only now is that really happening as we start to go back into offices and things begin to return to something like what we know as normal. So change is something that we are all faced with all the time. So hopefully if you're in a position where you are maybe leading a team at work and you are facing some of these challenges, what I'm about to talk to you about might be of benefit. I even think, and in fact, I know that what I'm about to say to you can be of benefit to all of us, even if we're not working in an organization that might be facing brutal change like the one I'm about to describe. So this company that I'm going to see has to get thousands of people to think differently about the company they work for. Now, as I say, most people will really struggle if the boss just comes in one day and says, "Okay, from tomorrow, I want you to forget the way you've been doing things and I want you to do it differently from now on in. Most people will struggle to find any motivation from that. They'll struggle to get behind that. And I have seen times at McLaren where decisions like that have been made without much in the way of explanation, just asking people to come in the following day or whatever the following week and do things differently. It doesn't work. You might get some people doing it. You might get people doing things reluctantly through a a fear of what the consequences of not doing it. But that's not in the long term going to be sustainable and be the best way to be productive. And so one of the things that I found during my time at McLaren, when I was part of the team trying to shape the change that we were looking to make at McLaren, was to tap into whatever motivated the people that I was asking to change their behaviours. And what I mean by that is, and this will link nicely back into this whole episode around perception, is that if you're the CEO of a company, if you're the boss and you see the need for your organisation to make changes, like this company I'm going to see in New York, if you see a need that your company needs to change its perception to the outside world, it needs to change the way that people view it, and that may be a valid change, like this one is, that change is motivated by a need to deliver bigger profits to shareholders, for example. It's the need to take a bigger share of that market. It's a need to become the best in your marketplace, for example. Because as CEO, that puts you in a very, very strong light. Those are the kinds of metrics that your success is measured by. Now, if you're the guy on the shop floor being asked all of a sudden to make those changes, you're not motivated by your company having a larger market share or your company turning bigger profits than it did the year before. Those things, they may have some level of motivation, but they're certainly not the biggest thing on your agenda. So 
one of the things you need to do, and this is what one of the things I'm going to go and try and work through with this company is you need to tap into the things that motivate the people that you're asking to make the changes. Now at McLaren, in my experience, one of the things that we had to do, and these were one of the, some of the things that I instigated at the team, we had to tap into something that could galvanize our team and bring our team all together. Now, of course, it's slightly different for a Formula One team because the goals of the people at the very top of the team, at least to some extent, are shared with those further down the organisation, winning the world championship, becoming the best Formula One team you can be. Hopefully, most people in those in all Formula One teams share that same goal, at least to some extent. But the reality is when I started looking through this and looking into this, that varies wildly on a huge scale. Some people in that team, and I'm sure in most teams, whilst of course they would love to be part of a world championship winning team. If you're the guy who works in the factory in some obscure part of the operations centre, not having any direct input to the car or the race team or the race outcome on a surface level, Maybe you're there because it's just a great job and you get to go home at 5pm and it pays the bills well. So for that guy, maybe the motivation at the moment might be simply that it pays the bills. It might be money. It might be that it's a convenient job that's close to your home so you can get home in time to spend the evening with your kids and it still pays the bills for you. That might be an even bigger motivating force than winning the world title. And that's the truth. I'm sure some fans won't even appreciate this, won't even realise this, that not everybody in a Formula One team, bearing in mind there are hundreds, if not a thousand people in some teams, not everybody is an enormous Formula One fan. For most people in those teams, they never go to a racetrack. Some of them don't even watch the Grand Prix on television. And just from that fact alone, you can be pretty sure that their motivating factors are going to be different from those who are huge race fans and motivated by the glory of winning on the track. And so if you want your company or organisation to be the best it can be, you've got to find what motivates everybody in the team, everybody in the organisation. And if you can't find a thousand different motivating forces and tap into each one individually, is there something that can galvanise them all together? And this was the process that I went through at McLaren with some of my colleagues in finding that motivating force. What is it that can draw all of the people in that team in the same direction? What can ignite a little bit of passion around what we're doing? more so than just the paycheck and the early finish, if that's what you've got. For us, we discovered and tapped into this idea that the McLaren Formula One team has incredible history. It has a history of incredible success. If you think about Formula One over the ages, it's impossible not to think about McLaren somewhere in that history. Some of the most famous drivers, some of the most famous cars, some of the biggest incidents in the history of the sport have featured McLaren. Some of the biggest successes in the sport have featured McLaren. And these are huge moments that are way bigger than even just our team. 
These are moments that people outside of Formula One are exposed to and recognised. And they ignite passion. They ignite emotion. People become emotional when they hear and see some of the stories in McLaren's history. And there must have been a way that we could tap into that and start to ignite passion amongst everybody in our organisation to a similar level. Make those people, even the ones who weren't necessarily race fans, appreciate what they were part of. And we did that in a number of different ways, putting imagery around the factory of some of those big moments, some of the huge iconic moments, making people realise that when you pull on that McLaren shirt, you're simply a custodian of that shirt. You're simply a custodian of the McLaren Formula One team at that moment. You are carrying the baton, hopefully, towards further success. And eventually you'll hand it on to someone else who will continue that journey. But just think about all the people that have handed that baton on to you over the years. What they've built, what they've created, what they've been through. Why people look at McLaren in the way that they do. With a viewpoint of huge success, professionalism, an organisation of brilliant engineering know-how, of brilliant people, of heroes. If you can tap into that and make people feel proud to pull on that McLaren shirt, all of a sudden you get an even bigger buy-in as to what we're doing. So the guy who's making components somewhere down a production line who right now might as well be making a component for a washing machine for all he cares about where it goes when it leaves his workstation. If you can get that guy to appreciate that actually what he's doing is working on a component that could change the outcome of one of the biggest sporting events in the world. And you, this guy, you can have an impact on that. Well, that completely changes that guy's perspective of what he's doing. It's a bit like the guy, the famous story of the guy sweeping the floor at NASA. When someone asks him what, he's, what he does, what's his job? And he says, I'm sending people to the moon. He's sweeping the floors at NASA, but he's bought in to the passion of what they're trying to achieve. And that was exactly what we did at McLaren. We linked up the race team that were at the circuit with the factory, the people that never got to go to the racetrack. We linked them up with video footage, with video links into our garage. We gave them regular updates from the garage at the racetrack, wherever we were in the world, giving them a unique an exclusive update just for them that no one else was getting. You couldn't get this stuff on television. This was just for them because they were part of our team. They were our teammates. And little things like that, allowing them and encouraging them to celebrate when we celebrated at the racetrack. Linking the sides of our team to make everybody feel a part of this huge, passionate, successful, historic organisation change the game for many people and over time and it does take time but over time by tapping into the perspectives of everybody around that organization and realizing figuring out what motivates them or what could motivate them differently we became so much more powerful so much stronger and it was some of those changes and decisions that led on to us becoming a world championship winning team again 
I felt hugely honoured and proud to work for such a big, iconic, successful and historic organisation. A big, such a big part of the sport that I loved. I felt proud to have been a custodian of that McLaren shirt and to hand that baton on to other people who are now still running with it and trying to aim for more, bigger and, and future successes. I was a part of that story and I was passionate about it. And many of my colleagues who didn't always feel like that in the beginning began to feel that over time with some of the changes that we made. Ultimately, everything I've just said to you again comes down to perspective. Because that guy who just didn't really care about what he was actually doing and how it fitted into the bigger picture of a Formula One operation, because it was just to him just a job that paid the bills and allowed him to go home early. That's a very different perspective of that particular role in an F1 team to the perspective of the management in that Formula One team. They're seeing it from completely different sides. And so to find something in the middle, some common ground that, that ignited the passion and brought them together to a common goal, a common passion, that was the key to us delivering bigger and better success. And when I go to New York this week, that is exactly the story that I will be telling them because that's what they need to do. They're a historic company. They are known the world over. They're known for being great. And so there are elements within that that they can tap into to bring the perspectives of all of the different people in that organisation somewhere closer to a middle ground that everybody can agree on, that everybody can fight for a cause that is passionate, that is passionate for everybody. And ultimately, that will generate the success that the guy at the very top, the CEO, the boss, who's really motivated by the profits and the market share, it will deliver those successes for him, but it will also deliver to the people much further down the organisation who are looking to be proud of the company they work for, who are looking to tap into some of the history of the company they work for and what that means to them and to the people who buy their products. These are really simple ideas. When you boil them all down, like I said right in the beginning, it comes down to perspective and seeing things from other people's point of view. Because if the CEO of that big company only looks at things from his perspective, he won't get anybody, anybody else in that company to buy into his vision for the future and why they should all change what they're doing. But if he and the team around him can start to tap into the perspective of others in that organisation, see things through their eyes, see what motivates them or what could motivate them in the future, they'll be much more successful in delivering this change that will ultimately take them to the place they want to be. And one of the things that I said they need to start thinking seriously about now is if they want to be a different type of company in two years time, what would that company be doing today differently to the way they're doing it now? Start thinking about those things, linking it into people's motivations, and there, boom, you start to get the levels of success that you're looking for and the buy-in from all around that organisation that you're after. And look, to bring this back before I wrap up to you and I, to people who are not necessarily working in huge organisations, to people who are just living their everyday lives, the very same thing applies. If you want 
to bring about change, whether that's change for you, for your family or the people around you. If you see a goal in mind or you see a direction that you need, you think you need to go, you want to make changes and you need support from people around you to do that, you need to start looking at their perspectives and what could help to motivate them to go in the same direction that you want to go, if that's what you feel is going to deliver your success. It all comes down to perspective. Empathy, trying to understand another person's point of view will deliver us all to a far better place more quickly than it ever will do if we don't manage to do that. Whether you're in Formula One or in business or just in life, this stuff works, believe me. And I will encourage you all this week to give it a go. Just think a little bit more about other people's perspectives. Look at decisions you might have made. Look at arguments you might have had or discussions or disagreements you've had just in the past week. And try to just for a moment think about why the person on the other end of that argument was so passionate from their perspective. How could they possibly believe so adamantly that they were right when you feel the same way about your position? It so often just comes down to perspective. It really is a simple concept that can change the way we all see the world and should change the way we all see the world. I've given you a number of examples today that show from so many different perspectives how things can look so differently. And yet it's the same thing we're all looking at. We're just looking at it from different angles. So I encourage you this week to try and work on that, to think about that a little bit more in your own lives and just see if it makes a difference on how you approach things and how you approach people and how you deal with people. Just taking a moment to try and understand their point of view might just completely change the game for you. You never know. Okay, we're going to leave it there because we have wrapped up an hour. I would encourage you to go and listen to the podcast that I talked about, the High Performance Podcast from Jake Humphrey, listening to the perspective of a referee. I have encouraged my own son, who is a footballer, to go and listen to it for that very reason that he is one of those people, like most footballers are, who are so critical of referees when the decision doesn't go your way. So I have told him to go and listen to that before he goes and plays his next match. It might be worth many of you listening to, particularly if you're football fans. I hope you all have a wonderful week. I would really, really appreciate it if any of you can spare a moment to first of all share this on your social channels. Just tell somebody, even if you want to just send somebody a message and say, listen, have you checked out the Pit Lane Life Lessons podcast? Send them a link. Put it on your socials. And if you do, tag me in it, please. I would really appreciate that. I might retweet or share some of those in my Instagram stories if you can. That'd be fantastic. And as I said at the beginning, if you've got a moment to rate and review the podcast, it makes a huge difference to how far this podcast is spread, how far and wide it goes and how many people get to share in the same experiences that we're all going through here. And hopefully some of the lessons that I'm sharing with you from the Formula One pit lane. I hope you all have a fantastic week. And as ever, do the right things, do the things right.